In this episode, we speak with Garhang Kong, managing partner and founder of HealthQuest Capital, a leading healthcare-focused growth equity firm. HealthQuest invests in commercial stage innovations across the healthcare spectrum, from medical devices and technologies to biopharma and diagnostics and beyond. Garhang founded HealthQuest in 2012. He is a physician, scientist, and engineer by training, and has over two decades of experience investing in innovative healthcare companies with a long list of successes, including 28 IPO and M&A exits. Garhang received undergraduate degrees in both chemical engineering and biological sciences from Stanford while on an athletic scholarship. He then earned an MD, PhD, and MBA from Duke University, graduating at the top of his class in each instance. His early career included stints at GlaxoSmithKline, McKinsey, and a medical device startup, Therox, before joining InterSouth Partners and then Sofinova Investments. I am your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Garhang, so great to chat with you today. Appreciate you taking the time. Would love to kick off a little bit. We're going to do a background on the front end of this. So I'd actually like to just jump right in and talk about your early start to investing. What made you take the jump into venture growth? Yeah, no, thanks for uh, having me, RJ. I appreciate the opportunity. So just by way of background, it turns out that everybody in my family is a practicing physician. So I'm the only not real doctor, as they say. And it's a little bit of a rite of passage, but everybody in our family gets their MD and then they can flip hamburgers or pump gas or do whatever else they want afterwards. So growing up, my father's a physician, cardiologist, turns out my wife is also a cardiologist. And I saw him seeing patients and it's a wonderful relationship where you know a lot about your quote unquote customer in the sense that you know a lot of personal information, of course, the medical information, you know, all the family members and the like. And I thought that was just a really wonderful sort of intimate professional relationship and the opportunity to help people. So as I was growing up, I wanted to do that. But then I realized that instead of seeing one patient at a time, I might have the opportunity to invent something and innovate a new drug or device or diagnostic or digital health. So then I got into research. So in addition to my MD, then I did my PhD as well in biomedical engineering. And I was fortunate. I worked on some things that worked. So then patented, licensed, actually went into a company. And then I learned nothing goes from the bench to the bedside unless it gets commercialized and goes through a company. So then I went and got an MBA as well. And I started realizing that to impact the most number of people, I'd have to get into the business side. So then I was at a big company called Glaxo Welcome. Now Glaxo's been fine. I did a stint at McKinsey. Uh, and then I thought, well, maybe I should start my own company and help people. And so I did one and then two. And then I thought, well, most scale is to do 50 of these. And the way to do that was to be an investor and to partner. And so now I definitely do not know the names of the underlying patients, but the scale and magnitude of impact is much, much larger now. So that's actually how I got into investing to begin with. For the audience, I guess we could see how it's like one to many. Actually, as a doctor, you're one to many, but you amplify that when you become the head of a fund. It's you impacting the lives of so many that it trickles down 
to the end customer, and you could kind of multiply that out. I guess now switching to the scale that you've been able to accomplish, how do you go about selecting the companies you want to partner with? Yeah. You know, for us, it's still a very people-oriented business. So on first principles, the entrepreneurs and the executives that we work with, we want to feel like have shared passion about impacting healthcare. You know, at the end of the day, we have an obligation to, in our case, generate really great returns. But we do that because we want to have large impact on the healthcare system in a positive way. So certainly from a people point of view, where they're oriented, the skill sets, right? Even if you want to impact healthcare, if you don't have the experience or the expertise to do that. So we think a lot about the team. From a opportunity point of view, one of the nice things about healthcare is that there's a lot of opportunity, right? We clearly have not cured all the ailments out there. Our healthcare system is very large. People know that it's not the most efficient. So both from a patient outcome and a health economic point of view, it's significant. But we look a lot at the specific nuanced market opportunity, of course. We think about technology. And for us, technology sometimes is very high in science. And we're happy to do what I call the Nobel Prizes. But frequently, it's not. It's what we call the paperclip of healthcare. And it's low tech. But if you use it 10 billion times in healthcare and you make it a little bit better, it's also really valuable. At the end of the day, there's a whole list of things that we're looking at and diligencing. Some great companies could just be great, but maybe not for us because of the strategy and the type of capital that we're deploying. So we want to be mindful of that. But if you look at it statistically, we probably look at a thousand companies, maybe a little bit more than that every year. And you know, we'll probably do five or six new investments. We are pretty selective from that point of view. One of the things that we talk about internally is it's a really big commitment for us. We're not one of these spray and pray kind of institutions. We think of it as getting a tattoo, right? If we partner, like we're getting a tattoo and it's a permanent thing. And so we're very, very focused on making sure we partner up with the right companies. And so one of our investors has told us, you know, it's great that you have six degrees and all this, but at the end of the day, we want you to have great yes, no judgment, right? Because you can do all the diligence you want in the world, but ultimately you either invest or you don't invest. There's no, you kind of invested. So we go through a large process thinking through all that. This is actually where I was heading in the conversation was your background is different. I would say likely the majority of investors and fund managers out there and that some of them have kind of grown up in the private equity, growth equity, venture industry, and then they go on to raise their own fund. But I could see how both from a company CEO perspective and an LP perspective that you can look more compelling because of the deep science and the degrees, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, How has it been different, do you think, for you versus others on either end deal sourcing or capital sourcing? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we have come to realize, and you've probably seen as well, is, I mean, capital is certainly important. At the end of the day, that's what you're deploying, quote unquote. But there is a lot of capital out there. And for the really good companies, they're quite sophisticated and distinguished amongst capital. And I can actually say that in many of the companies that we've ultimately partnered with, we're leading all the rounds, we're on the board of all the companies, that they can, in fact, be quite competitive. So these companies are making active choice 
and not based on valuation, but based on these other components that you're talking about, RJ. And so for us, I think that a combination of things, right? One, many of us have actually sat in their seats where we have operating experience, we have been CEOs or CFOs or, or whatnot. Second is we do have very, very deep healthcare experience. So we are not generalists who invest across communications and IT and healthcare and crypto. This is all we do. And so when companies say, can you help us talk to Blue Cross Blue Shield, United, Aetna, Anthem, Cigna, Humana, we know all of them, or pick any healthcare system in the country or pick any medical manufacturer. So all of that, I think, is really important in terms of the ecosystem. Uh, And then, of course, as you pointed out, from an individual point of view, we can say we understand what it's like to be a physician or a nurse or to be an entrepreneur. And so we're not hypothesizing over a spreadsheet saying, hey, why don't you build your business this way? Either operated in healthcare as practitioners or certainly as executives. And so that has been actually a huge differentiator. In fact, we've had many companies choose to partner with us at valuations that might actually not be the highest that they've been offered, in part because they believe that we can be long-term value-added partners. And that's the kind of situation we want to be in. And of course, we also want to work very hard to contribute to building that value. So it's worked out well for us. <laughs> now, switching to the macro picture, I mean, we're well aware of what's happening in the overall macro environment, resulting in a slowdown of capital being deployed. Healthcare is probably one of the more resilient sectors. There's always a need for sure. healthcare, and undoubtedly. So how has the macro picture impacted the way you operate? Yeah, so... I would say modestly because of the things that you just said. I mean, healthcare is not a optional industry. If you have cancer, you need to get treated. You may or may not want to buy that next consumer good, but healthcare is frequently not optional. So even though the financial markets are certainly challenged right now, the healthcare markets, if you will, are still operating. And in fact, COVID is definitely a net negative for the world, but COVID as a market didn't exist three years ago. And now it's billions and billions and billions of healthcare dollars getting spent. And so that's just one example of the market getting augmented. So from a market opportunity point of view, the demand for healthcare, not just because there's new indications, but because more and more people want it, right? It's not just the well-to-do now. I would say almost every socioeconomic status in this country, wants better healthcare, and then now globally as well. So from an intrinsic point of view, the market continues to grow. Now, there have been some impacts because of the financial markets. So for example, in many situations, healthcare companies that had IPO as a 2022 milestone or event, that's almost certainly not going to happen. And so they need to rethink, well, how am I going to finance the business? And how am I going to continue to build the company because that pool of capital is not available. So almost certainly it's the private markets in these situations. In our specific situation, we're fortunate because our investment strategy, even before this downturn, has always been to get companies to self-sufficiency. So we're not assuming there's another private round or we're not assuming that they have to do the IPO. They could do the IPO because it's available to them but it's not mandatory. So in most cases, the companies we've partnered with are operating 
business as usual. Now, to be fair, for the very small handful that need to raise capital, then, of course, they are facing a more challenging set of facts because valuations are different, the comps are different. You know, the one good thing that's to the positive in 2022 compared to the downturns of 00 and 08 is the amount of capital in the system, right? I mean, if you're a company, even though the valuations are challenged, if you're a good company, you probably can raise the money, maybe not at the valuation you like. I will tell you in 00 and 08, there was orders of magnitude less capital in the healthcare investment ecosystem and more companies just went out of business. So that's what I would say. One maybe nuanced fact that you might find interesting is that many of the healthcare systems are really large investors. So they run a hospital that doesn't actually have huge margins, but they have a huge balance sheet and they use that balance sheet to invest. And so ironically, the front end of the store is doing fine in the sense that it's continuing to operate. But the back end of the store, which is the investing side, has also been affected by the public markets and this downturn because a large part of the continued growth of assets is in fact on the investing side. And maybe it's not just similar to some of the hotel businesses where it's technically a Marriott or a Hyatt, but really the business has a lot to do with other things besides the hotel. Switching to your kind of investing experience, how has it been so far? Has it been easier or more difficult than you anticipated? Granted, you're going on 10 years, et cetera, in the investing role and, and having a fund. And then as a second part to that, what has been surprising to you and what has been, I guess, less of a factor as you've kind of been going along? I think that, again, we joke about this. You know, I have two bachelors, two masters, two doctorates. But the one degree I don't have is a PhD in psychology. And that might be the most useful of all of them because you think it's all about, you understand the technology, can you size the market? What are the payers going to do? But in fact, a lot of it is just the human dynamics of what is the current board dynamic? What are the management team members? What drives them and so forth. So I would say from a textbook point of view, you could say, hey, here are all the things I need to do to be a good investor. But a really important component is this human factor because at the end of the day, companies are run by people and understanding how that dynamic works. So that's probably something that many new investors may not fully appreciate. The other part is that it is a team sport. I think that no matter how good you are in terms of experience, intelligence, work ethic, at the end of the day, you have a point of view. We're dealing in the world of imperfect information by definition. We're trying to innovate and create something. And so having more people that are also smart and hardworking and have experience, but different experiences, I think also brings really good judgment when it comes to making those investments. And so, in fact, for example, at HealthQuest, we have specifically not tried the blueprint a bunch of MD, PhDs, plus or minus MBAs. We actually have some MDs and some PhDs, but we have CFOs. We have people who are human capital experts. We have people who are engineers and attorneys and like, so that we can bring a collective wisdom to what we do as well. Got it. Well, we're coming up on time here. Uh, I do have two or three final questions. We could do okay. this kind of short order here. So I'll go with the, uh, the first of the last set here. And can you tell us a little bit about a book that had a profound impact on you? 
Yeah. So I will take the less serious side of this. One of my favorite books is a book called Ender's Game, which won the Hugo and Nebula Award for science fiction and they've since made a movie. But I loved it in part because it was so strategic and this young kid was not stronger or faster, but he was smarter uh, and was very strategic. And I guess it's a little personal, but my wife and I both love the book. In fact, our first child happens to be a boy. And so his middle name is actually Ender. So there you go. Excellent. Can you tell us about a uh, leader that you particularly admire? could be across any domain. One of the uh, folks who I really admire is Mike Krzyzewski, or Coach K, uh, who coached the Duke basketball team, just retired. I mean, he's the winningest coach of all time, both college and then, of course, has multiple gold medals. But I got to see him because I went to Duke for medical school, and he actually spoke at our internal medicine grand rounds to physicians. And obviously, he was not talking to us about basketball. He was talking to us about leadership and how teams work together. And so I've always admired his ability to pull people together, whether it happens to be on the basketball court or when he was speaking to us as a team of healthcare providers and how we could come together and help the patient. Do you think leadership quality that he obviously has was that he was born with it or that he cultivated it? Obviously, he had some innate talent. I think he also learned some of it from his military experience because he was at West Point and so forth. But I think with many other things, if you're intentional about your leadership and focused on it, it should be a skill set that you can certainly improve on. Maybe some people have a little more starting material than others, but he certainly has honed his craft over 50 years. Got it. Okay, last question. I read that you are a foodie. So tell us about, I got maybe a few questions here if you want to fire them off, but favorite cuisine, favorite restaurant, favorite dish? Wow. Favorite cuisine is probably Japanese. We love sushi. Favorite dish, and by the way, it happens to be today, is fried chicken. So this is National Fried Chicken Day. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I'm a connoisseur of fried chicken. And then, you know, my wife and I traveled to eat. So probably the best restaurant that we enjoyed, this is a number of years ago, is called Asadora Ichibare in Spain. And it's a grilling restaurant where they grill everything over wood, fire, and I mean, the butter is smoked as well as everything else. I think now they have probably two or three Michelin stars, but at the time, it was slightly less well-known. Excellent. Is that in Madrid? No, it's not. It's actually in between Barcelona and San Sebastian. It's okay. in the middle of nowhere, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that area. Excellent. Well, Garhang, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with us. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thanks. Real pleasure, RJ. Appreciate it. 